Well, the most recent Gallup uh, poll on church attendance concludes with these words. It says, Americans have been less likely to attend religious services over the past three years. And at this point, it does not appear that, the church, that church attendance will revert to pre-pandemic levels. These recent trends have added to the longer-term decline in religious participation that Gallup has documented over the past two decades. In the new book, The Great De-Churching, that came out just two weeks ago, the authors make it clear that over 40 million people have left the church in the past 25 years. To explain how historically significant this is, they point out that more people have left the church in the past 25 years than became Christians in the First Great Awakening and the Second Great Awakening and all of the Billy Graham Crusades combined. And so, what do you make of this? What does this tell us? Well, I mean, some of you can hear that and may think that the end of the world is here. That church-going America is over. And that might, in some respect, be true, but it also might be the opportunity of a lifetime. Because, after all, is really the point of the church merely to get people to come? What does it actually tell you that people don't come to church on a Sunday like they used to come on a Sunday? Well, it might be catastrophic, of course, but it might simply mean that the days of consuming church are over. It might only indicate that the spectators stay home. And really, the church was never a consumer good or a spectator sport. So it may tell us uh, not very much about the reality of things. you read carefully your New Testament, you would probably say, well, church attendance is not really a thing in the New Testament. And it isn't. And it wasn't. Because in the New Testament, church was not something you go to. It was not a building or a place. Church was something that you are. To be the church meant that you had a new identity, that you were united with Christ. You were part of something new that God is doing in the world. Here's what we say about the church in our statement of faith. We say, we believe Christ's church is a living spiritual body composed of born-again people of which Christ is the head. Our local church membership consists of baptized believers associated by a covenant of faith who worship and fellowship together and observe the ordinances of baptism by immersion and the Lord's Supper. Last week we celebrated the Lord's Supper. At the end of this service we'll uh, enjoy baptism by immersion. And so, yes, 
That's part of church life. We believe that God has laid upon the members of the local church the primary task of giving the good news of Jesus Christ to a lost world. So that's sort of our statement of faith, but in order to see how the Scripture fills this picture out, I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians is about halfway through your New Testament, and it's a letter to a church. It's a letter to a church to talk about, well, church. And it gives us really good clues about what church should be like then and what church should be like in our day. So Ephesians chapter 4, I'll begin reading in verse 1. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in you all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he had also descended into the lower regions, that is, the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves or carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cutting and by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And so here he gives us this picture of a church. And that church is not something you go to or something you attend. That church is something you are. And that life together in the church is radically dependent upon Christ. And as a result, it is radically demanding and radically participatory. The life in the church is dependent upon a risen Christ. The church is nothing if there is no resurrection. The church is nothing if it is not about Jesus. And so I'm going to show you here, first of all, because this is the foundation that life together in the church is radically dependent on the risen Savior. You'll notice that first verse, it says, 
I therefore, prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. I want you to walk worthy of the calling to which you have been called, which makes us ask the question, or might's a question, with what calling have we been called? How have we been called? Um, my phone didn't ring. On the other end of it wasn't Jesus who said, hey, Scott, so how have we been called? Well, it turns out that the book of Ephesians is about that call. And in chapter 1, if you were just to flip back a couple pages, uh, you'll notice several glorious statements about God's initiative in salvation. He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world for the praise of the glory uh, of His grace. And so for our good and for His glory, He looked at us when we had nothing to do with Him, and He chose us. And He decided to set His affection on us before we could ever clean ourselves up. Then chapter 2 also has some beautiful statements about the response that we have of faith. It it describes us, uh, not in glorious terms, but it says, you being dead in your trespasses and sins, he's made alive for by grace you have been saved through faith. For by grace you have been saved through faith. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, but he's made you alive and now you belong to him and you are saved by grace through faith without any doing of your own. Then chapters, the end of chapter 2 and chapter 3 talk about what God was really doing when He reached down and rescued us, when we trusted Him and He put us together in one family, in one people, in one group that we can now call the church. And He says that that group is intended to have this really unique uh, composition. And it's composed of people who otherwise would not get along. In fact, Jesus died to make one people of Jews and Gentiles who would have nothing to do with each other. To take those two groups and put them in a church and equip them then to get along. Not just get along, not just tolerate one another, but to love one another. And that happens because of how overwhelmingly we have been loved by God Himself. And that's how chapter 3 ends. That you might know the height and the length and the breadth and the depth of the love that God has for you. And when you get it, that I am loved like that, this four-dimensional love that sort of is beyond our imagination, when I really get that, that's the calling. That's a calling, and the invitation is to live as someone who is that radically loved by God. That you have been chosen, that you have been uh, given grace, that you have been called by God Himself into a relationship that you did not deserve. And when you get that, that's the call. And His invitation to us is to live as people who have that, had that kind of thing happen to us. Well, he, 
He gives us another look at that same kind of call in verse 7 of chapter 4. It says, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. We have been given grace according to the gift of Christ. Everything that you have with this call, when He called you, He didn't call to lay demands upon you. He called that He might give you grace that you did not deserve. The nature of the Christian life is a life of grace. It's about grace that's been given us in Christ, and all the rest of the Christian life is getting your head around that and figuring that out and experiencing it with other people. Such that this calling God has placed in your life does alter your relationships and your attitudes and your way of thinking so that you live worthy of it. Well, there's more about the call. Verses 8 through 10 highlight the fact that uh, the church, the call of the church is dependent on the resurrection of Jesus. When he ascended on high, he led hosts of captives, and he gave gifts to men. And it talks about ascending and descending. And basically, those three verses talk about the incarnation, Jesus coming to earth as an infant in Bethlehem, growing, living a perfect life, dying on a cross, rising again, and then ascending to heaven. And so he descended and ascended. That's what it's talking about here. And it quotes Psalm 68, 18 in order to remind us that when Jesus died on the cross and rose again, He won a victory over sin and death and the devil, such that He then would give gifts to men. And the picture is um, that of a conquering general who has won a battle on a distant battlefield and he's taken plunder and he's taken prisoners and he's heading back to the king and they have a parade, and there's a parade, and he leads uh, all of the captives in this big parade, and along with all of the plunder. And from the plunder, then, he gives gifts to the citizens of his hometown. That's the picture here, that Jesus has so uh, destroyed sin and death and the devil that he now has plundered uh, the kingdom of the prince of the power of the air, and now he gives gifts to his people. Which means that the church is radically dependent upon the risen Christ who then has so um, uh, uh, clearly and so definitively won this victory that now he just can disperse his gifts to his people, and that's what the church is built on. It's built on the gifts of the grace of Christ. So if there is no resurrection of Jesus from the dead, there is no church. There is no calling. And so the church lives together radically dependent on the victory of Jesus and on the resurrection. Well, that's the foundation of really what uh, the church is about. If the church is not about Jesus and His resurrection, there is no church. Well, the second thing 
that you see there that I want to make sure that um, you hang on to is that life together in the church is radically demanding. It is radically dependent on Christ. It is radically de demanding on you and on me. Now, all of a sudden, you say, well, I knew, I knew the other shoe would drop. Yep. I started off awfully good there with the resurrection of Jesus, and now here we go. But I want you to look at I want you to look at the demands that this calling placed on you. He starts off by saying, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, verse 1. Then verse 2, with all humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love. That's the demand. That's the demand that the church would, in fact, the, the walk that's worthy of the calling with which you've been called is to walk like Jesus walked, to be humble and gentle and patient, bear with people. I mean, I'll tell you what, if you don't think Jesus did that with you, he did, and he is. And so the worthy walk, the lifestyle that you're being called into is a demanding one, and what it demands is humility, gentleness, patience. Now, if you're like me, that sounds extraordinarily demanding. Like, I mean, have me do push-ups or, you know, run all day or do some other thing, but don't make me be humble and bear with people and be gentle and patient. I mean, that, those are the hardest things in the world. But our response to the gospel and to the life of Christ within us is to be like Jesus. To bear with people. To be patient with them and to be humble. And so when you when you hear, walk worthy of the call with which you've been called, the, the first, you know, first reaction might be to say, oh, here comes this hardcore, works-based uh, call to repay God for such a great salvation. But that's not it at all, is it? It's really this invitation to be like Jesus, to live in union with Jesus so that we're different. So that we're humble and gentle and patient. It's not some hardcore workspace thing. Rather, it's a good faith, full-hearted love response to being given undeserving grace by Christ. And because it's a high call, to live worthy of it is also a high call. And so it's these, char these characteristics, and I, wa I want you, this to register with you. It's these characteristics, this gentleness, patience, kindness, and bearing with one another that characterize the Christian life. To the degree you are humble and gentle and patient is the degree to which you are living as a Christian. Or I suppose you'd say it another way. If you're not humble and gentle and patient, bearing with other people, 
you're not living like a Christian. And you're walking in a way that's not worthy of the call, but actually is contrary to the call that you've received. And so this call to be humble and gentle and patient and kind is a hard call. And it's one that we, I think, need before us all of the time. This is one of the reasons that the church is beginning of a disability ministry. And in fact, on October 7th, we're going to have some training for the whole church about how we can pay attention to and care for those that may need the most care and attention. So that we can be helped and equipped to be humble and gentle and patient. And so I hope that's actually in the Sunday Hub if you want to find out more details, but I hope that you will... um, I hope it'll be something that you pay attention to. Because one of the ways you know if you're humble and gentle and patient is like who you, um, who you gravitate toward. Do you gravitate toward people like you, to people who are pretty or can do something for you, or do you gravitate toward those who uh, may have other needs? But either way, this is a call to be like Jesus in relationship. That's the high call. Then he goes on, as if that's not high enough. Man, that might even be the easy part. Because the next part, verse 3, be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now, eager is a funny word. I don't know how many of you woke up this morning eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Like, bounded out of bed, say, whew, I get to go do that. I didn't. And eager may not exactly be the right word. If you could translate this word, and probably um, for those of us who aren't so eager, as conscientious. Be conscientious to discharge your obligation to maintain unity. In other words, you're paying attention for things that would disrupt unity, and you're trying to be a unity bringer. And so you conscientiously work at it. But what are you working at? Be eager to maintain uh, the unity of the Spirit in the bonds of peace. You're eager or you're conscientious to maintain something that you already have, right? To maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. You've been given the Spirit who, and so have the other people who have come to faith in Christ, and so there is this inherent Unity between you and them. Not based on the fact that you have lots of common interests, but based on the fact that you have the Holy Spirit in common. And it says be eager or be conscientious to maintain that unity, which very simply means don't mess it up. Don't mess it up. Don't be the person that ruins what God has already put within you. And... It's not like, oh, you're going to accidentally do that. God has, God has done a lot so that that unity would be evident. Look at the rest of the text. It says, be eager to uh, maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And then what he does is there is this seven-cord um, rope, you might say, 
that binds us in unity to one another. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called with one hope, that belongs to your call. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. There are all of these things that we have in common, including Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who create this common historical faith that we participate in. We have all been identified with Christ in baptism. And so there are all kinds of reasons that we should be united. And His call is be humble, gentle, patient, bear with one another, and then be conscientious not to mess up the unity God has already put inside you. Your job is to keep the unity. We're not covering over stuff. It's just doing the hard work, isn't it, of really having genuine, real relationships with other people. That's the thing. And that's the demand. That life together in the church is radically demanding because it's radically dependent on a risen Savior and we're identified with Him and that changes the way that we are human in this world. Well, then the rest of the text um, sort of fleshes out how you do those things, how you maintain that unity, how you live in a humble uh, way. And that, from verses 17 on, it basically says that life together in the church is radically participatory. It's radically participatory. In other words, you are invited to participate. Now again, this goes back to how I started when people are invited to attend. Attending is different than participating. To be part of it, to be in the game is different than to be in the stands. To be in the symphony is different than to be in the box seats. And so we're invited to participate. Look at the way the invitation goes there. Uh, after he talks about the, the resurrection of Jesus in verse 11, it says that he's given some uh, apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some shepherds and teachers. He's given some of the gifts he's given to the church have to do with the leadership functions of the church. And he's given those leaders to the church for a reason. Now, if you have an attendance um, sort of view of the church, a place or a program view of the church, then the way you think about this would be the, those are the clergy. And the rest of us are lay people. And there's a caste system here in the church that he's somehow identifying. That these apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers are the ones that put on the Sunday show that other people attend. And that's not at all how it's portrayed, is it? He tells us, and he tells us why he gave those people to the church. He gave some apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, for, he tells us why, for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. For the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. For radical participation by every single person. So the work of the ministry is done by the saints. And just in case uh, you 
have uh, maybe a Catholic background and saints are people that, who get days on the calendar or statues in the cathedral. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the saints, which uh, saints translates a word just it simply means set apart. And when God calls you, he sets you apart to himself, which makes you a saint. And so the work of the ministry gets done by the saints. It's the people of God who do the work of the ministry. This is not about attendance. It's about the church being built up and building up itself. I just, I just want to say, I mean, this is an important Sunday for us to be talking about this, isn't it? Because we are, um, today is the first day that the people who are going to be in Oregon City at New Life Oregon City are not here. We have sent them away. And so some of you are looking around thinking about attendance, aren't you? Like, hmm, I wonder where everybody is. Well, in some respect, this is a new reality where we all have the opportunity to participate and attendance is, you know, attendance is what it is. If it was about attendance, we certainly wouldn't do that, just so you know. Just so you know, we really do mean this. If it was merely about attendance, we'd try and get everybody we could in this building rather than send them away. Today was Cindy Soller's last day. She's going to go uh, serve with Cadence International uh, Military Base in um, oh, back east. I forget which place. But we wouldn't encourage her to do that if it was all about jamming people in the building. This is about the church being the church. This is, a church, this is about the church building itself up. And until it enjoys the unity of the faith and the knowledge in, of God, and it corresponds to the measure of the maturity of the fullness of Christ. The picture that is here is that God wants His church to become mature so that we relate to one another in a mature way, so that we have all of the parts doing all of the things that need to happen, so that we have people who can speak the truth in love to one another, and all of us are better for it. And so he's given apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers for equipping the saints for the work of the ministry. Now, I say the work of the ministry, and who knows what you think when I say that, right? Some of you are probably thinking, oh dear, he's after me about the nursery again, isn't he? Well, the work of the ministry isn't, that's not the work of the ministry. Filling a slot in the nursery isn't the work of the ministry. The work of the ministry is loving young moms and building them up. That's what the work of the ministry is. Because the work of the ministry is not about a church program. It's about love. It's about expressing that love to other people, however the church structures it. Teaching in New Life Kids is not some cross to bear, but it's a way to love children and to help them no longer be infants tossed to and fro by the winds of bad ideas. And you know, don't you, that kids grow up in a world of bad ideas. And they need people who will love them. That's what a mature church does. 
hosting a life group or serving in coffee cart or cooking for Celebrate Recovery. These are not just church jobs that somebody has to do. In fact, you don't do it because you need it. You don't do it because you have to do it or because even the church needs it. It's not a box that gets checked off so God's happier with you or you get credit or uh, stop feeling guilty. You serve because it is an opportunity to build other people up so that the church in turn gets built up. It's opportunities for love and for truth. And the funny thing is if you think, oh, I'm going to go do that and I'm going to build them up, guess what will happen? You'll get built up too. And somehow, mysteriously, the church builds itself up in love. And again, he highlights unity until we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. Knowledge, I have to say, is a key part of this. I had somebody even stop me uh, who was just brand new as a faith in the, after the first service. They said, thank you. I just am, I'm learning so much and it's coming together for me. And, you know, in some respect, this whole message is that it's not about knowledge, it's about love. But... It's also about knowledge because you can't, you can't be Christian without knowing and understanding and embracing some things about God and the, about Jesus. But guess what? Yes, it's my job to kind of say that on a Sunday, but it's the job of the saints to interact about that, to, to encourage that, to speak the truth to one another in love. It's that kind of interaction that happens uh, as a spider web of relationships rather than just from a pastor on a Sunday. So how does this happen in a congregation? I mean, this is where we experience it for the most part. Well, primarily this kind of thing happens in life groups and we've sort of structured that that's the simplest uh, way that we can make those things happen and that's what the topic will be about next week. But it happens in all kinds of other ways too, doesn't it? It happens you know, before and after service. It happens when people go out for lunch. It happens when uh, women get together for their retreat or for Thursday or one-on-one -on -one Bible reading. I actually love the one-on-one -on -one Bible reading that they do, which is just you get together with somebody else and you read the Bible. And guess what happens? You end up building up one another in love just like that. It can't not happen. That's the genius of it. You get an environment like that, it can't not happen. Because that's the way that God has put the church together. It's very tempting to say that, oh, I'm just going to be so, you know, I don't know. You wouldn't say this. You wouldn't say this. I might say this about myself. Condescending that I will go benefit all those poor people. No, no. Soon as you engage somebody in a relationship with love and truth, guess what happens? Surprise. Maybe they're built up, but it's going to change you. And 100%, that's the way God has designed it, that we get changed when we engage people in relationships. So that we don't stay children, but that we grow up into the mature man. The mature man is a view of, of a church that is mature, where all of the parts are doing what all the parts are supposed to do. So that there is a health and a vitality about the church 
that wouldn't be there if they were all spectating or if they were all uh, there consuming something. The maturity comes from participating relationally with other people. And so I would say, if you as a person are not growing or not changing or not maturing, you probably don't have those relationships. And it would probably be good for you to make it a point in the next uh, hour, the next little while, to figure out how am I going to get myself in that situation where I have those people in my life. Now, as soon as I invite you to do that, I invite you into turbulence, don't I? I invite you into a situation that is frustrating. And that's what he says in the text, that there's going to be waves of doctrine where you get driven and tossed by the waves. And that's what other people are there for. They're the ballast in your boat. And we're all vulnerable to this. We're all vulnerable to the cunning craftiness and deceitful schemes of other people. Sounds like they're sort of organized, doesn't it? Like there is an enemy of your soul and an enemy of the church that is trying to attack and to disrupt and to disintegrate this inherent unity in the church. And so we all need people who will speak the truth in love to us. People who will speak the truth in love. That's, that's just like the best phrase. Speaking the truth in love. And those are the two components of the Christian experience. Without which there is no Christian maturity. There is no Christian maturity just because you have truth. You can be an egghead who's a jerk and you're not mature. But you can't have it without truth either. You can't just merely have love because then you'll be a victim of the winds of doctrine and the bad ideas that float all around. You have to have both. And the church is designed that that truth and love comes from one person to another person all throughout the church. So much so that if you were to look at verse 16, you'll see how it happens. It says, through every joint that holds the body together. So the joint, I mean, your joints are, are great, even if you, they don't work quite right. Not all of mine work quite right. But the reality is there's two bones come together, and the point in which they come together is the critical factor. And that's what he's saying. When you come together, it's these joints, it's this, these relationships, this connection that provides for the church the, the glue and the strength to keep the church growing. Then he goes on to say, which, when every part does its role, when every member plays its part, when every little piece of your body is working right, you feel great in the morning, right? Same with the church. When every little part of the church is working right, that's how it's supposed to work. And there's good news and there's bad news here. The good news is that it does not all depend on one person. Not a pastor, doesn't all depend on you. The bad news is that if you check out, or if I check out, we all lose. 
that the church needs every part. Every person has a role to play in what God intends for the church. No one can quit. If you quit, all of us hurt for it. Now, I was trying to think, how can I, how can I help people get this? There is a sense in which when you think about church, it's like a middle school dance. I don't know if you remember middle school dances. Um, everyone's thinking, this is awkward. Yeah, sometimes church is awkward. That's right. But there's this middle school dance. Everyone generally is excited for it, partly because they don't have to go to school, right? Or if it's during the day like mine were when I was in middle school, like, hey, we get two hours off. This is great. Middle school dance. Everyone's excited about it. And then everyone just lines the walls and watches. They line the walls, song after song. Nobody's like, until there's usually one. Maybe there's two. People that go out in the middle, and they're all crazy. And they're just going for it, and they're so active, and they're so busy. And people are like, whoa, I'm not doing that. Because that's what dancing is. No way. I think that's a lot of times people will do that at the church. They'll just hang back and say, well, there's a crazy person in the middle who's doing all that stuff. That's not for me. And it isn't for you. That's not what, we're, that's not what you're being called to. You're calling just to play a part. Just to contribute what you uniquely can contribute. I, I thought of another picture. And I think, I think this happens at every single McDonald's, in, maybe in the world, but at least that I've seen in our country, right? Every single McDonald's has a group of old men that get together some Thursday morning for coffee. And they take this group of tables off the side, and if you were to listen to them, you'd hear something like this. Remember? Remember back when... We were sophomores, and we played Oregon City. Yeah, I remember that. We were something. Remember when we used to go golfing? Remember when we used to go fishing? Oh, those were the days when we used to do stuff. And you know what? Some of you remember when you used to do stuff. You're saying, oh, that was then, this is now. You know what? It wasn't. The church is the church. The call of God in your life is still to be involved with other people. It may not be at the level it was before, but it certainly isn't just to check out. Because every single part is important. One writer that I've enjoyed lately said this, the church is not accidental to Christianity, but central. The church is not merely a social opportunity to confirm your prior relationship to God, but it's the locus of the Christian's life. It is the center of the Christian's life. And so if people are de-churching, de-churching is different than not attending anymore, isn't it? Because what I'm describing here for the church is different than merely just showing up to something that happens. So what is a church? Church probably helpful to say what a church is not. Church is not a TED talk, a TED talk that interrupts a concert every Sunday morning. That's not what a church is. Church is not a building 
Church is not a religious organization with programs for everyone. Church is not a community service organization with a religious spin that might be comparable to Kiwanis or the Lions Club. So what is a church? Church is a group of people called to follow Jesus who respond to that call in a worthy manner by being all in when they follow Jesus. Church is a group of people who worship Jesus together in their words and their actions. Church is a group of people who have been loved by God and now pass that love to one another. Church is a group of people who are united not around their similarities, but who are not afraid of their differences. Rather, they're united around the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and the common faith that they've been given. Church is a group of people committed to living in sync with the truth. And they're able to talk to one another about it in a loving way. The church is a group of people who jump in to build one another up and where every single person matters. So I don't know about you, but that's the kind of church that I want to be part of. That's the kind of church that I hope we're building here. It's not the easiest kind. It's not even always the most comfortable kind. But there is a lot of substance to it, and it is one that I think reflects God's intent for church. And so I hope you will join me in building that kind of church. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, would you anchor us first and foremost on the good news that Jesus died for our sins and rose again? Would you help us to build into our lives those relationships that will challenge us, that will help us to be encouraged. Father, however that comes, would you just give us the grace that we need to live like Jesus and walk worthy of the call to which we've been called. And may we each be beneficiaries of the other people who do that as well. And so, Father, we'll thank you for your help now. In the name of Jesus, amen.